Well, good morning, gentlemen. Good to see. I'm doing good, man. Doing good. At least I think I am. <laughs> Unless you tell me otherwise. Well, good to see you guys. Everybody have a good Thanksgiving? Was the bird safe at your house? No. <laughs> you destroyed it. <laughs> yeah. Bird wasn't safe. Ham wasn't safe. Yeah. Pie wasn't safe. <laughs> Went after it all. Well, good to see you guys. Good to see you guys. You know, it's really amazing. Uh, it seems like when Thanksgiving comes every year, then you wake up, it's Christmas. So you're stepping into stuff right now. You walked in there, saw all the getting ready for the, we have a, a, the kids program on Sunday morning and all the stuff that's going on. This is a great, great time of the year. I do want to encourage us, um, you know, just stay mindful this time of the year. Wonderful opportunities to share the gospel. And, uh, you know, because uh, we're talking about Christmas and the, the table is set for us and you still have some vestiges of uh, uh, openness. And so let's, let's pray for one another and think of opportunities. And also want to encourage us, maybe even be a little deliberate, if you can just write down the names of people that you, that you know who are not followers of Christ and uh, pray and ask God to give you a particular opportunity right now to, to share. And uh, what a great time of the year also to use hospitality as a gateway to talk about Jesus to people and your neighbors and that kind of thing. Let's, let's, stay, let's stay aware. Let's stay aware of that. All right, well, let's start with a word of prayer. Father, thank you so much for um, who you are, and thank you, God, that we have been kept by your grace. What a wonderful thing, Lord, when we consider uh, the pitfalls around us, some of, them, some of them we're aware of and some of them we're not, and we realize how your spirit and your grace and your power and your love has surrounded us and protected us from dangers and mess-ups and screw-ups. We're grateful. And I pray, God, as we talk about purity and the high price of failure today, that, uh, God, you'll keep us mindful, um, not only of our shortcomings and failures, Lord, but uh, our propensity to do the things that will hurt your heart and not be wholesome. And yet, at the same time, may we uh, press into your power and your grace. We love you, Lord God, and pray that you'll work in a great way. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have a Bible, we're going to spend time in, in a passage uh, today. I want you to turn back in the Old Testament to 2 Samuel chapter, uh, chapter 11. We're going to be in 2 Samuel 11, uh, verses 1, verse 1 through chapter 12, verse 14. Um, if some of you who have been here at Fellowship, if you were here uh, last year, I did a series on the life of David, and um, you may, may or may not, I give myself too much credit because I don't even remember half time, but you may or may not remember, remember this message. And uh, so some of what I'm going to share with you uh, is, is very, very familiar. Um, before we get going, I, I want to um, wanna ask you, what is the relationship between pride and moral failure? What's the relationship? Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, unpack that a little bit. So, um, let's say you are in a state of moral failure and you are just screwing up left and right and you don't want to admit to it. Oh, I got you. Yeah, that's a great, that's a great observation. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Pride comes before the fall. I think it's also pride that's wrapped around entitlement. Mm, you know, mm. I deserve more than I have. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. When you find pride, you normally find entitlement language. Yeah. Yeah, I, you know, uh, pride camouflages on neediness, doesn't it? Um, and, he, you know, I said this on Sunday. Um, every person was born to depend on God. Every person was born to depend on God. And our neediness, our neediness is a gift from God. It's a gift from him. And self-reliance will always take you down the path of stupidity. It will always do that. Self-reliance will always take you down the path of stupidity. Yep. Yep. And that's the reason why biblical Christianity is counterintuitive. It's counterintuitive. Uh, you know, the world says, I mean, we are the center of the universe. We're, you know, we deserve this and we deserve that. Now, I, I got to say here, I want to make a distinction. Uh, there's a lot of false teaching about humility. Humility and dependence upon God is not a lack of confidence. It's, a, it's the direction of that confidence. So to be humble does not mean that you walk around denying gifts and denying abilities and denying this and denying that. Uh, that's not what we're talking about. And it's not prideful to be confident, but it's the direction of your confidence. Uh, it's who you're relying upon. It's who you're trusting. It, you can be confident in God, confident in God be courageous yes, yes, yes. and be assured. Uh, you, you can know that he's with you. Um, you know, it takes confidence to preach the word. You got to stand up and believe what you believe and believe that God is with you and he's got something to say through you and you act like that. That's not pride. That's, 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 a, that's a God confidence. You can live the Christian life with confidence. You're depending upon him and you know that the Holy Spirit is with you and his promises are true. So we're not talking about um, low self-esteem wrapped in spiritual language. That's not what we're talking about here. But we're talking about dependence upon the Lord. That there is not a second in our lives, not a nanosecond in our lives, where it's okay not to depend upon God. Not, not one. Not one. Yeah. Yeah, I need to remember that. I said that. <laughs> I'm serious. That's pretty good. <laughs> the arrogant. Yeah, amen. <laughs> the arrogant have knowledge. Yeah, it is. I will do that. That's good. I'm serious. Yeah, sometimes these things that I shouldn't have confessed it, sometimes that stuff is like random. Yeah. <laughs> I don't, you don't even tend to say that. And uh, yeah, so I would have taken pride in that. Maybe that's the reason why I couldn't remember it. So. <laughs> yeah, so I just want to begin by saying, and we're going to see this as we wander through David's uh, uh, immense failure. You know, 
we, we, we've got to watch the pride in us and watch our language. Watch what wells up in us in terms of, as Bob says, this whole entitlement thing. You got to watch what you think you deserve. And pride prohibits us from appreciating grace. You can only appreciate grace when you know that you're needy. When you know that you don't deserve it. I've got a friend right now that I'm praying about. He doesn't, it's not no one here at the church. Uh, this friend of mine has uh, been a very prominent Christian leader. And he's making a transition right now. And he's not handling it well. He's not handling it well. It's surprising a number of us. Um, it's surprising a number of us who have known him for years. How all of a sudden this entitlement language is bubbling up inside of him. And uh, what he deserves and this kind of thing. And, uh, you know, we know he's accomplished a lot, but it's almost as if he's idolizing what he's done, what God has done through him. And so all that to say, no matter how, how godly you have been and no matter what God has done through you, Pride is never taken fully away. We all fight that battle. And if you know this guy, and if I would mention his name, you would be shocked by saying, oh, him? Yeah. And it's a lesson to all of us. I look, I say, well, Crawford, watch yourself, buddy. Watch yourself, man. Um... And this is particularly true. Women struggle with pride. Everybody struggles with pride, okay? But I think men particularly because of our bent and because God created us to accomplish, to achieve, uh, to be hunters, to gather and gain for others, that's part of, part of our role, the, the calling that God's given to us. And But with that natural bent, you can start celebrating what you've done and what you've achieved in an unhealthy way. So all of that to say, yeah. Uh, I say that uh, closer that you get to God, more careful that you have to be with your pride. Mm -hmm. Because there's somebody who's been making miracles that God uses for making miracles and preaching the gospel. And doing things that people don't know, pride can grab you. Yeah. And you can end up thinking that you're a favor from God and you're doing all these things that God used you. That is one of the things that happened to David. Yeah, it is. And we're going to get in that. Happened to Isaiah, too. In fact, as you look in the, the scriptures, it is amazing. This sad pattern emerges that scares me to death. Scares me to death. How many people started well? And God used them in incredible ways. Just think of them. And we have this dastardly tendency to own what God did. We have this, I don't know what it is, we have this tendency to own what God, what God only did. And uh, um, that's the reason why I was sharing with some of our residents yesterday. That's the reason why with greater blessing and visibility, there has to be corresponding brokenness and humility. It has to go like this. If it doesn't, then, you know, you think you're going to start competing and you think you own this. And you think you deserve it. And we're going to see this in David's, in David's life. In fact, how God responds to him. Yeah. been like 
have been feeling a lot of angst about that because it's like as I'm growing, I'm realizing more and more that like God is my source, He's mm-hmm. my provider, He's the one yeah. who promotes. So for me to feel or think that I have to do it a different way because this is what everyone else says, you know, like this is how they advance. Um, you know, I just I've I've had a hard time, you know. Yeah. Yeah, you know, uh, one of the things uh, I'll say this, and I'm uh, I am not obviously a businessman or in in the marketplace, but one of the things you learn, you have to appreciate, is you can't bifurcate the scriptures and say the Bible that works in spiritual context, but it doesn't work in secular context. God's principles work everywhere. They work everywhere. Uh, you know, we take a lesson from Daniel. Daniel teaches us how to thrive and survive in Babylon. And uh, it's interesting, you look at him and you look at his life, he never did it the way they did it. But he cultivated faithfulness, he did what needed to be done, God bought the recognition and God bought the promotion and God bought the platform. I've got a number of friends of mine who are very successful out there in the marketplace who are committed believers and they say the same thing. Uh, now, I mean, it's nothing, it's nothing wrong to want, to want to progress in your career necessarily, but it's how you do it that tells the story. You don't have to step on anybody. You don't have to, you don't have to put people down. You don't have to cut corners. Uh, when you honor God's word and you honor his principles, it works. And I think anybody out there in the marketplace should study the life of Daniel. Mm. So, standing in the shadows and waiting for God to highlight what you've done or waiting for other people to highlight what you've done for success, that's not how it's intended to be done, I believe, by God. I believe he appoints you based on stand on what has happened. Yep. It's like you're getting the credit. Yep. Don't take the credit for yep. yourself. I think that's the difference. Yep. If you're going around boisterous to yourself and saying, I've done this, these are the accomplishments I've done, and nobody loves, nobody likes to hear somebody boisterous themselves that way, right? <laughs> but if you're saying, you know, Yeah, that's a good word. That really is a good word. So he's cautioning against a false humility. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, a scripture that, that really resonates in my heart with the humility is just that Proverbs 27, 21, the crucible for silver, the furnace for gold, but each man is tested according to the praise that is given to us. So when the accolades come, how we channel that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is, uh, <laughs> that's, yeah, that's, that's, that's really good. Yeah, yeah. So humility is intentional, and it cannot be assumed. That's what we're saying, right? You cannot assume humility. Humility is intentional. Yeah. Um, some help to pass this out here. These out. I think they. We put them on clips there. The table. All of what we've said here in principal form is seen in, uh, tragically in, in, uh, in David's failure. Um, if you've been around church for any, any length of time, you've probably heard this preached and talked about. The Apostle Paul makes this statement in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12. If anyone, any man thinks he stands, let him take heed lest he falls. Okay? Pride says you're going to fall. And you're going to fall. Yeah, that's right. Don't know when, but it's going to happen. That's right. 
taking you with such. Amen, amen, amen. So there are two fundamental realities that I want to underscore here as we get into the story, that this is the frame here. One is temptation is powerful and sin is devastating. You might want to write in parentheses, don't be stupid. Temptation is powerful and sin is always devastating. Secondly, sin is expensive. You will always pay more than the pleasure you got. And the chickens will always come home to roost. You'll always pay more than the pleasure you receive. Always. I can't tell you, I've talked to a number of guys who've had affairs, who've fallen morally, and you know, I'll, I've, I've asked them this question now, tell me, was it worth it? The sex was good. Was it worth it? Was it that good? Was it that good? Was it worth you uh, losing your wife and family? Was it that good? Was it worth uh, violating the confidence of people in you? Was it that good? Was it that good? See, sin is expensive. Death comes disguised as pleasure. Death always comes disguised as pleasure. We see it repeatedly through the scriptures, case after case after case after case after case after case after case. But it's, it's like somehow or another, we don't think it's going to happen to me. We don't think. We're going to get into that in a moment. Let's you take a look at 1 Samuel chapter 11. The context here is that David is powerful. He's been installed as king. Uh, he, is, uh, he is wealthy. Um, he is secure. Um, nobody's messing with him now. He has a loyal, loyal, loyal group of guys around him. So much so that they didn't even want him to go out to war. And by the way, I think, uh, and I've, I've done this myself, I've, I've changed, I, you know, I've, uh, I've sort of mispreached this passage. Uh, we make a big deal about David fell into sin because he stayed home. Technically, that's not right. That's not true. Uh, he wasn't at the wrong place because he stayed there in Jerusalem. Um, in fact, his, his leaders had encouraged him as the light of Israel to not be careful. We don't want you going out to battle. So it wasn't, wasn't that he, I mean, it sounds dramatic that he, he fell on the sin because he was the wrong place. Well, the wrong place was on that rooftop. The wrong place wasn't Jerusalem. He got in trouble because he stayed up on the rooftop. And uh, uh, for those of you going to Israel with us, anybody here going to Israel with us? When you go to Israel with us, you go to the city of David, and, 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 and when we stand there and look out, you're going to go, ah, I can see how David messed up. You'll, you'll, immediately, you'll stand there and you'll see you're up there on those, you're looking down over the rooftops and it just makes sense. Lights come on. That's how he screwed up. And so here you have... You have a situation. Verse 1 says, uh, in the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and, the, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem, and it happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful, very beautiful. Pause right there. 
So the very first bullet point is that David stayed home. David stayed home. Goes up on the rooftop, heat of the day, in the afternoon, trying to catch a breeze. And he looks and he goes, ooh, 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 ooh. I probably should go back inside and read one of those psalms I wrote. Boy, but she's beautiful. I don't need to be here. Mm-mm-mm. I wonder who she is. That was, that, was, that, that was like the second thing. The first thing is that he stayed up there. David, uh, the second bullet point is that when David saw the woman, his desires were aroused. Okay? It's aroused. And then he sent and found out who Bathsheba was. Now, I got to say, in the text here, God himself is throwing up roadblocks. He's throwing up roadblocks. He's saying, David, don't do this. David, don't do this. David, don't do this. He's he's throwing them up. I mean, I I found found in my life that that God uh, is warning me, don't do this. Don't do this. Don't do this. And what did David find out? Yeah, let, let me, yeah, that's right. But let me, let me tell you what else he found out about her. Hmm. David finds out, finds out that Bathsheba was the daughter of Eliam, one of David's best fighters. He finds out that she's the granddaughter of one of David's most trusted counselors, Ahithophel, which later on was problematic. Um, He finds out that she was the wife of one of the inner circle of honored soldiers. You see what the Lord's doing? David, you know, not only is it sinful, but she's off limits. Don't do this. Don't do this. I've quoted this so many times. All sin is a case of temporary insanity. You know, you just, you, you just don't believe it. Your desires are strong. Your feelings are strong. And David had made up his mind to sin with this woman when he saw her. None of this information changed his mind. None of his, this information changed his mind. He had made the decision beforehand that this is what I'm going to do. He got all this information. Man, <laughs> daughter of one of your best fighters, uh, you know, the granddaughter of one of your most trusted counselors, the wife of one of your honored soldiers. Uh, don't do this. Don't do this. Well, what happens? David gets the information. Verse 4 says, so David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him and lay with him. He did the deed. He did the deed. David sent for her. And she sent messengers back to her. I said, I'm pregnant. Well, here's the warning. The warning is that sin is self-deception. Sin is self-deception. And pride will make us think that we're smarter than we really are. 
David just said, all right, I can get over. Now, here again, follow this here. You would think, you would think he does the deed. David knew the scriptures. He does this thing here, right? Girlfriend comes back and says, I'm pregnant. You would think, okay, here's another, another way that God's saying, okay, David, look, stop right now. You can make this right. Roadblock was you knew who all these relationships, but you did it anyway, right? Thought you're going to get away with it, right? Okay. A little roll in the sack. Okay, now she's pregnant. You would think at this point he would say, oh, God, what have I done? What have I done? David was not in a good place. Sweet David, the one who wrote the Psalms. The worshiper, that's right. The one who ran from Saul but lived an honorable life. The one who saw God, he saw God do incredible things. That David, yeah, that David did this. The apple of his eye, that's right. Guys, let me tell you something. Don't you ever say what you would not do. Don't be that stupid. Don't you ever say what you would not do. And uh, just because you have victory in areas of weakness and you've been walking in strength for a number of years, don't you think it can't come back to bite you? And David teaches us this. So here you have it. This, this, dude is, this dude is not, he's going down, man. So the woman's pregnant. He should have fallen on his knees and repented. Called up Nathan. He said, Nathan, I screwed up, man, big time. I am so sorry. God's been so good to me. You know what he does? The second part of this saga is not just the sin. Number two is the cover-up. I mean, homeboy is not in a good place. He doesn't unravel himself from all of this. Won't listen to God. So he covers the thing up. Now, this is verses 6 through 27. I summarize this. The warning here is that deception breeds deception. Never forget that. Lies have a way of metastasizing. Where there's immorality, there is lying. There's lying. And never underestimate the power and the pull toward self-preservation. If you won't depend upon God and obey him, you're going to try to protect yourself. And that's exactly what David does. David got intoxicated with his power. We'll see this a few moments down the road. David got intoxicated with privilege. David got intoxicated with his power. David did this because he could. Because he could. We're seeing now in the news uh, all the sexual misconduct and this kind of thing. And it's interesting, the powerful people. Um, I'll go there with this. I don't know that I would say this on a Sunday morning, but I'll say it here. Um, there's an uncanny relationship between prominence and power and sexual misconduct. And the reason for that is you do it because you can. You can. And you control the destiny of other people. Or at least you think so in your head. These people work for me. Who, who's going to believe them over me? And so David is in this power corridor right now. And he did it because he could. Let me say this, and I, uh, this is the reason why. You, you see, 
You know, we talk a lot about community and accountability and this kind of thing. This is another reason why community and accountability is terribly important. We, we, we need people to give us perspective and holy equilibrium. We need around, all of us, if you're isolated, you're going to be a head case. If you're by yourself, I tell you, nothing good ever happens to a man who flies solo. Nothing. Nothing good ever happens to a dude. And I tell you, I'm, I'm, I'm 67 years old, and I say that with confidence. Nothing good ever happens to a man who flies solo. You lose perspective. And I don't care what it is, and here David has this platform and all this power. So what does he do? He covers it up. Um, he has this strategy. Well, first of all, David goes, okay, okay, this ain't no big deal. Ain't no big deal. I can fix this here. All right. Got resources. Um, what are we going to do here? Okay. Don't worry about it, Bathsheba. Keep your mouth shut. Okay. Don't tell nobody. Early stages. We'll just go... Uh, We'll just go bring, number one, bring Uriah back home. That's what he says here. Bring Uriah back home. Let's go get him. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite, and Joab sent Uriah to David. So David tells him to come back, and okay, bring him back home. And what will happen is that, you know, uh, he'll go home, and they'll do what married folks do, and they will... Everybody will think the baby is his. He'll think it's his. You'll think it's his. You know, it might be born a little, you know, it might come a little earlier, but, you know, but they'll, they'll think that. It's a done deal. What happens? Uh, the plan backfires. <laughs> Verse 9 says, but Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his Lord. It did not go down to his house. When they told David Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, have you not come from a journey? Sounding so tender and considerate. Why did you not go down to your house? Listen to what Uriah said, God speaking through this dude. Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live, and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. <laughs> God would speak it through him. I was saying, David, this man is far more honorable than you. He is serving you the way you should have listened and served me. Can you imagine? But David's, David's stuck. He said, okay, right, right, this ain't no big deal. All right. So that didn't work. I said, well, plan number two, get him drunk. Just, just get him high, you know, then he'll, he'll stumble in the house and, you know, he'll do what needs to be done. Even if he doesn't remember, we'll say that you had sex with your wife and this is your baby. So that's what he tries to do, okay? Well... This also backfires. He didn't do that. Uh, the last line of uh, what is it, verse 13 says, but he did not go down to his house. Verse 14 says, in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. I mean, David, the psalmist, the one who wrote, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He did this. He did this. David did this. And that was the third thing. David ordered the death of one of his most valuable soldiers. You know, I just list a couple of questions here. Um, 
and it sounds so personal, I'm not assuming that anybody here is in sin, but just think about it. What lengths are you going to to cover up your sin? I've heard some pretty amazing stories. Amazing stories. The second question is, are you more afraid of others finding out what you've done than you are of hurting the heart of God? David was into sin management here. He wasn't into repentance. He was managing what he'd done wrong. He didn't want to repent. And here's the third one. This is the one that um, we don't think about. Do you realize to not repent is to say that you want sin to be a permanent part of your life? You want that sin to be a permanent part of your life. To not repent means that I'm going to be marked by this. And do you want that? Do you want that to be a permanent part of your life? See, by the way, by the way, I know we get into compartmentalization, but nobody successfully compartmentalizes sin. We think we do, but nobody successfully compartmentalizes it. There's no such thing as a successful hypocrite. None whatsoever. Our sins will always find us out. We can game it for a while, cover it for a while, get over. Well, now we transition into the exposure. David thinks he's over like a fat rat. You know, things are gone. I mean, hey, uh, war happens, folks die, some of your best people die. And I don't know if he had crocodile tears or whatever when he hears about this, but he, he feels like... Um, Okay, this is behind me. Everybody has an oops, so let me get on with my life. Uh, but he had forgotten something. There's a sobering line at the very end of verse 27 <laughs> that says, But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. I can imagine that God is just saying, you honestly think I didn't see this? Seriously? You, you thought I was going to wink and nod at this? You think I was just going to, okay, it's, you know, whatever. My grace will cover this. I'm a merciful God. and I'll just confess it to him. but won't get rid of it. You, you think that's going to be okay? It was evil. Yeah, that's, that's good too. It is to displease the Lord. So the second bullet point here is that God revealed to Nathan David's sin. So uh, for the sake of time, I'll just summarize verses 1 through 6 here on chapter 12. What ends up happening is that, uh, you know, Dave, David comes to Nathan and he, he paints this picture to him. You know, David always had, if you study life with David, he had this strong justice thing in him, even though he acted in an unjust way. It's sort of a crazy piece. But, but, you know, he, Nathan comes and says, hey, man, David, you know what? Down the road here is this small little, little place and this poor family. Uh, they have this little ewe lamb. It's a little small thing. It's like the family pet, and they feed it and this kind of But you know that property uh, uh, bumps up against, the, you know that big spread down there? You know, the, the acres and acres over there, and that man with all those sheep and all of that stuff and more than he needs and this kind of thing. He said, yeah, yeah, I know about that. He said, yeah, well, you know, um, man, he was having company the other night, and I heard the story that uh, rather than taking one of his own, and killing it and butchering it and serving it up. He wouldn't even miss it. He had so many of them. You know what this guy did? 
He went over there and took those kids' pet. Yeah, oh, don't go down that road. Uh, took those kids' pet. And David gets incensed. So you you got to be kidding me. Verse 5 says, Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. He's dead. I'm, oh, tell me who it is. I'll get him. He says, and not only that, he shall restore the land fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Now, by the way, this is going to come back to haunt David. This fourfold thing is going to come back to haunt him. David was giving himself its own consequences by what he re, how he responded. And David and Nathan looked David in the eye. Said, uh, you're the man. You did this, David. You abused your power. You took from this man, his wife, and you took his life. When David condemned, by the way, I'm getting ahead of myself, uh, the third bullet point is that uh, when David condemned the man, the, the rich man's sin, he also was condemning himself. I look at verses 7 and 8. Nathan said to David, you are the man, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. This is, this is, this is painful. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and, and of Judah. And if this were, not, were too little, I would add to you as much more. You didn't have to do this. Listen to what he says here. You know, David's, David's sin was an act of ingratitude. And every time we sin, it's a betrayal of the goodness of God. Gentlemen, did you hear what I just said? Did you hear what I just said? Every time we sin, it's a betrayal of the goodness of God. Look at what I gave you. What I gave you should have humbled you and created in you gratitude. What did God, I mean, look... He, God had given David position, protection, possessions, prestige, and privilege. He had given him all of that because he obeyed him. You did it my way, and I gave you this. What made you think you could do it your way and keep this? Look at your children, guys. God gave you these kids. Look at your wife who believes in you. Look at the people all around who trust you. Look at the physical stuff that he's given you. Houses, clothes, cars. Look at all of that. Crawford, 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 man, don't, don't let that desire betray all of this. So it was a sin of ingratitude. Um, now the consequences. What were the consequences? Well, number one, Bathsheba became pregnant. Secondly, Uriah had died. This guy said, you got a mess on your hand, man. You got one mess on your hand. Uriah had died. Now, here, here it is. Here it is. You know the fourfold? He will repay fourfold. Four of David's sons would experience premature death. Four of them. Um, an unnamed son, right? That baby that died. Uh, Amnon died prematurely. Of course, Absalom died prematurely. And Adonijah died prematurely. And here's a caution. I have said this before here. 
You can choose your sin. Yes, you can. But you can't choose your consequences. You can choose, you can choose your sin, but you can't choose your consequences. That's out of your hands. You can try to manage them, but that's still out of your hands. But here's the great thing about David. God broke him. And the final step is that there's the repentance. Verse 13. David said to Nathan. Six words. I've sinned against the Lord. No pride now. There's no cover up. There's no lashing out against Nathan. He said, Who do you think you are, Nathan? There are plenty of other prophets. I'll kill you too. No. David said that. Time to stop this man. Sometimes, you know, when we <clears throat> when we're talking to people who are believers and they're living lifestyles that are not honoring to God. Sometimes it's a good thing to just look them in the eye and say, you know, when are you going to stop? When are you going to say it's enough? How many more people are you willing to hurt? Why do you keep injecting embalming fluid in your life and future? And I think it just scared the crap out of David, what Nathan said. I think what happened to David when he articulated what God had done for him That it scared him to death and shocked him into reality. It was like, I've lost my mind. I've lost my mind. What the heck am I doing? You know how exhausting it is to live in sin? You, you, you know, the confliction that is there? I've talked to guys who have, you know, sexual addictions. Those dudes are worn out. They are worn out. The amount of mental, gym, mental gymnastics that you've got to go through to cover your tracks. The lies you've got to tell. I mean, that's crazy. Crazy. It's exhausting. I actually think David was relieved. His brokenness is articulated over in um, Psalm 51. That's right. And I want to encourage us later today to go read that. 
What a great, one of the great, great passages, one of the unbelievable expositions on repentance. And in fact, that'll be your assignment today. Uh, I want you to go later today and read Psalm 51 and look at the principles of repentance from Psalm 51. I just want to give us four reminders, and this is what David does. First is to face and fully embrace your sin. I have sinned against the Lord. Stop in my tracks. Face it and fully embrace it. Secondly, receive God's mercy, forgiveness, and grace. There's no need to beat yourself up over it. Now, this does not mean um, there is, we do have to make things right when we sin. We do have to make things right when we sin, particularly in the moral area or whatever. They, they, people have been hurt. And uh, we do need to rebuild and restore trust. You can lose trust by making one bad decision. You can lose trust in a minute. But it might take you weeks and months to regain it. If not years, that's right. Trust is in, and so I'm not saying when we receive his mercy, forgiveness, and grace, forgiveness is one thing. Uh, reconciliation and rest restoration, they're another thing. And usually that's a process. But we need to receive his mercy and grace. And keep in mind, as with David, this is also true with, with us. God did not remove all of the consequences of David's sin. He forgave him. He forgave him. He restored him, but he didn't remove all the consequences of his sin. This stuff never left his house. There's an incestuous situation that took place later on. He had hell in his household. His own son, Absalom, wanted to kill him. These boys died. You know, I, I mean... Obviously, God can do anything, but there, there, when we sin, as I said, it's always far more expensive than we've anticipated. And even though you've been restored, or a person has been restored when they make bad choices, sometimes your children pay for it. And even though it's, it's, it's right, but if we could see on this side, What's going to happen when we sin? I think we'd make some better decisions. If you could just see it. And part of the problem, see, in our culture is that we, we believe the lie that we're all individuals. We believe the lie that we're just disconnected. We believe the lie that I can do pretty darn well what I please. And... Uh, well, that's, that's, that's not true, is it? We, we are, are connected. Yeah. Uh, before we pray, I guess it, maybe you have time for a couple of comments or questions. Um, interesting, the, uh, the gratification we get initially, um, we want the repentance to be just as quick. Mm -hmm. It takes so much time sometimes that repentance can actually take effect. One of my first bosses told me, it can take 100 data boys to make up for one mistake. Yeah, yeah. I think what you mean, though, repentance can is immediate. You're yeah. talking about, you're talking about, you're talking about, the, yeah, 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 the restoration and, and the removal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That back up. That's right. That's right. I want to say something, though, that might sound like I'm, I'm backtracking a little bit here. 
I think on the other hand, when people have sincerely repented and they have submitted to authority and they have been restored, then we need to vouch for them. We need to vouch for them. Those of us with the Bible church background, we don't do too well with that, typically. Yeah, we shoot on Wednesday because, to be honest with you, uh, you can spiritualize it, but the bottom line is that they've become an embarrassment to us. They've messed up. And uh, so you got to be careful of the, the pharisaical uh, attitudes. There's, there's a tension. Uh, some people, in the name of being grace-oriented, restore folks too quickly. The issue has not thoroughly been taken care of, and so you put them in a position of visibility and stuff like that, and, you know, they're not whole. You do nobody any good by giving them a platform, and it's not about embarrassing us or this kind of thing. Um, not about that at all. It's about that person being whole. And it's about that person uh, overcoming. But I think, the, you know, we, we, need to be, we need to be advocates for people who have gone through the process, who have been restored, and uh, who are we? God has met us at our point of need. So let, we, we've got we've to go to people and help them get to where they, where they need to be. Um, and that's the other side of it. And so just because somebody screws up, you don't throw them on a trash heap uh, and you get embarrassed by them. Now, if they don't want to repent and they continue to live in that lifestyle, you got to go through Matthew 18 and sometimes they have to be expelled from the church because of the, the lack of wanting to, to repent if they're believers now, unbelievers, they can stick around as long as they want to and hear the gospel, but if they are believers and they name the name of Christ and yet they do not want to repent, they don't want to change, and they're living this kind of lifestyle, then uh, for their own good, uh, you need, we need to deal with sin. Yeah. One or two others? Yeah. yeah, yeah. The quickest way to regain trust is to embrace your brokenness. That's the quickest way. The quickest way. Uh, I'll tell you this quick story. I sat down with a guy a few years ago. Uh, it was revealed, it was just a mess. He, he, he had been living a double life for many, many years and this kind of thing and uh, finally came to the surface and, you know, loses his job and his family and this kind of thing. And, and as I sat down with him, um, it was, I was a little bit disturbed because on one hand, he acknowledged what he had done wrong and that, the, you know, it was sin and, and this kind of thing. But he just so quickly was moving to how does he protect his image? You know, how do I protect, you know, I said to myself, I said, man, you don't need to be going there, buddy. Uh, what you need to be doing is not to defend yourself whatsoever. The walls are down. And your attitude ought to be, you know, whatever I need to do, to demonstrate that I'm sorry about what happened. Whatever I need to do to make this thing right, whatever I need to do, uh, I need help. But the more you defend yourself, you put people off, and it's an evidence that perhaps that pride has not been taken out of you. Father, thank you for uh, your goodness and 
This is sobering stuff, Lord, and um, help us, help me, help everybody. Lord, I just pray that we will be consciously aware of the fact that there's not a moment in our life that we don't need you. And God, help us, Lord, to pay attention to the warnings that you send our way. Help us to stay out of harm's way. Help us, Lord Jesus, not to make assumptions about our strength, uh, but to keep pressing into you. You are the great keeper, Father. We don't need to be afraid because you're with us. Father, I pray for strength, and I pray, God, that you'll help us to keep pressing into relationships and keep the doors open, Lord, for people to speak into our hearts and our lives. Help us not to be defensive and make excuses for our shortcomings and failures. Father, when we sin, may we say it like David did, I have sinned against the Lord. Uh, May we, Father God, continue to grow. Help us, we pray. We love you. Thank you for what you will do. In Jesus' name, amen.